welcome back to The Climate Lawyer, a podcast about the business and law of climate change for lawyers, people who work in the industry, and the climate curious. I'm your host, Rich Kim, an American lawyer at Clifford Hans, Germany, and member of the firm's Climate M&A team. Today, we're going to be talking about greenwashing. I'm joined by my excellent colleagues from our DC office. Karina and Dave, would you like to briefly introduce yourselves? Sure, thank you, Rich. Hi, everyone. My name is Karina Bashir, and I am a second-year associate in Clifford Chance's Washington, D.C. office, as Rich mentioned. I work in the litigation and dispute resolution practice, focusing on white-collar government and internal investigations and regulatory compliance. I have also had the chance to dive into the ESG sphere, and it has been a great opportunity to work in a quickly evolving practice area with widespread implications for both financial institutions and the climate. My name is David Adams. I'm counsel in the Washington, D.C. office. My practice focuses on broker-dealer and investment advisor regulatory and enforcement issues. Uh, like Karina, over the last few years, I've had an opportunity to kind of dive into ESG aspects, issues for our clients, particularly investment managers who are looking to either make investments in the ESG space or in many situations talk about what they are doing from an ESG perspective and their marketing materials and otherwise. So it's been a really interesting uh, really interesting last few years and watching, particularly here in the U.S., ESG really explode as a huge issue. Yeah, and we'll definitely get into that. I mean, most folks who are listening to this podcast will already know or have an idea of what ESG and what greenwashing is, but maybe you guys could provide some background on you know your understanding of those terms and why they matter. Yeah, absolutely, Rich. So ESG stands for, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, environmental, social, and governance issues, essentially. I think ESG, because it's such a broad concept, I think you're right. You really have to start digging down into individual aspects of the E, the S, and the G to understand what ESG is kind of all about and really to understand the metrics that underpin it. So from an environmental perspective, we're talking about topics like sustainable land use, energy use, carbon emissions, toxic waste, air and pollution, et cetera. On the social side, we're looking at gender diversity, human rights, data privacy, employment and hiring practices, health and safety, so on and so forth. And then on the governance side, it can be things like equitable board composition and structure, uh, corruption issues, and executive compensation. I think that for our discussion today, we're going to be primarily in the e-sphere, just because that seems to be where most regulators have really gravitated and focused, although there are increasingly examples of social concerns and the S coming into play here in the United States as well. But I think we're going to be mostly focused on the E. Yeah, I kind of wonder, I mean, on the issue specifically, you know, there was this development some weeks ago where Tesla, known as a, of course, this electric vehicle manufacturer revolutionized the industry, was dropped from the S&P's ESG index. And while certain other companies, including a large fossil fuel company, still remained in that index. So I kind of wonder, is there sort of maybe too much hype around this ESG term? Does it sometimes lead to kind of absurd results? Like how can that be the case that Tesla is not a part of an ESG index? You know, it's a great question. And Karina is going to talk about this a little bit during her portion of the, of the presentation. But I think you're exactly right and that it does seem to be a somewhat absurd result. 
I think that ultimately, though, this is part of the push, at least in the United States, for more regulation and more definition about what ESG should mean and how it should be utilized by ratings agencies like S&P and others, just establishing standards that the industry can really abide by and that, more importantly, investors can understand. I think it's very difficult for an investor to understand why Tesla will suddenly, to the extent they're invested in an ETF or some type of index fund, will suddenly be ripped away and out of their investment when I think that that's probably not what they anticipated going in and, you know, when they wanted to make, you know, environmentally conscious investments. Also, we have this term greenwashing too. Karina, would you want to sort of describe a little bit of what that means? Yeah, sure. So... The term greenwashing is the practice of conveying a false impression that a company or product is environmentally friendly or failing to accurately describe the company's ESG practices. So companies do this because they want to capitalize on the growing demand for environmentally sound products. And of course, as you mentioned, you know, with Tesla, that there is growing concern regarding increased investor consideration of ESG factors, as well as the potential impact of ESG rating agencies on investment and capital. You know, it's actually such a great point that you're making that there's sort of a motive (laughs) behind greenwashing where it's sort of helping to improve a company's image or helping to sort of contribute to their bottom line, helping to maybe acquire talents or, you know, it seems like there's a lot of incentives behind or temptation around trying to greenwash. Let's get into this a bit more. What kind of developments have you guys seen in, you know, with respect to ESG or greenwashing? As you noted, there is this great temptation for companies to greenwash because of the growing concern on climate change in general globally. So the Biden administration is also on board with that and has had a major focus on climate change. So Biden has issued several executive orders directing federal agencies to implement ESG-related practices. For example, in May 2021, President Biden issued an executive order on climate-related financial risk that highlighted the growing physical and transition risks of climate change on the U.S. economy, on workers and families, and called on the federal government to take concrete steps to mitigate these risks. And in addition to that, the administration announced its plan to spend $2 trillion over four years to significantly escalate the use of clean energy in the transportation, electricity, and building sectors. And the plan is part of a suite of sweeping proposals actually designed to create economic opportunities and strengthen infrastructure while also tackling climate change as a focus. In addition to that, we see developments with the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, with their development of the ESG Task Force in March 2021. The initial focus of this task force was to identify any material gaps or misstatements in issuers' disclosure of climate risks under existing commission rules. And the task force has only become increasingly active, in fact, issuing its first enforcement action very recently, last month. In addition to that, we have, in April 2021, the SEC's Division of Examinations issued a risk alert regarding the lack of standardized and precise ESG definitions in connection with an increasing number of ESG-related investment products and financial services. And in March 22, we see the proposed rule for public company reporting. So the SEC proposed disclosure requirements that it claims would enhance and standardize 
the climate related information that SEC registered entities provide to investors. So we'll mention this a couple times in the podcast, but right now the standards are not defined clearly, but are in the process of development. So in May 2022, proposed rules for investment company and investment manager disclosures were released. And then actually this month, there was an SEC proposal to expand the scope of the definition of investment advisor, which would impose ESG reporting requirements on providers of ESG indexes like the S&P, as well as model portfolio providers and pricing services. So, you know, as you can see, based on the trend from the initial development of the task force in March 2021, the net is being cast wider and wider. So right now, clients who may not be specifically noted within the scope today, maybe tomorrow. So it's definitely important for them to be aware of developments in the space. I mean, basically, a lot of what you're saying is that this kind of concept around ESG and that this concern around greenwashing is essentially also driving a lot of governmental action, right? That the kind of animus behind ESG is kind of driving, like you were saying, the executive orders that Biden has recently issued also like items that, well, the Department of Energy is doing or that are kind of further to the bipartisan infrastructure bill that was passed. And this concern around greenwashing is also kind of what the SEC has in mind that, well, there are certain disclosures that companies are making now on, on a voluntary basis. There are kind of ESG linked indexes. And I guess, like we were saying before, the SEC is pretty intent on standardization here and transparency and trying to have, you know, basic rules around what we mean when we're saying ESG. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, right now, as these rules are in development, many regulators are actually looking to existing standards to inform the rules that they're seeking to implement. And at CC, when we've been, you know, in the process of diving deeper into this space, we also use these resources to understand and kind of try to see what's coming down the pipeline. So specifically, you know, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, the TCFD, and the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, SASB, are examples of the type of foundational sources that the SEC is using, as well as other, you know, these ESG reporting agencies, Many are looking towards these two foundational sources and examples of the type of disclosures include, as I think Dave mentioned in the beginning, you know, goals to achieve net zero emissions with a focus on scope one, two, and three GHG emissions, as well as potential risks resulting from global warming. So they mentioned acute risks such as increased frequency and severity of extreme weather events, like wildfires, floods, and hurricanes, in addition to requests for disclosure on chronic risks. So how would weather patterns, temperature increases, and rising sea levels impact the disclosing entities? So um, and those are just a few examples. I mean, the SEC rule, the recent rule proposal, it was like a 500-page document. A lot to cover there, definitely. I mean, we could do a whole podcast on these sort of things, right? Maybe, I mean, just to to back up a little bit, when you're mentioning, like, for example, scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions, could you maybe provide a little background on what that entails when disclosures are made around that? Yeah, sure. So when we're talking about scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions, we're talking about various sources of emissions. Scope one would be the company's own emissions 
that it's putting out on a daily basis. Scope two could be emissions from service providers that the company is using. When I say that, I mean, how much energy is the company using on an annual basis? And then scope three, I think, is probably the most controversial, certainly in the United States. And there's been a lot of pushback against it because scope three really looks at the entire value chain. Some people sometimes say the supply chain, but I think it's better to look at the value chain, at least from, particularly from a financial services company perspective, because you know, this would be looking at situations like what types of loans, like what entities is a bank loaning money to and what is the ultimate impact of that lending so you can see situations where companies that have high carbon emissions footprints might not be getting financing or you can see situations where people would be pushed in the manufacturing side to try and use more fuel efficient cars or trucks in the delivery of their goods and services so on and so forth. And I think that the reason Scope 3 has been so controversial in the SEC's proposal for public company reporting is because it's really hard to quantify that type of information because many of these companies, downstream companies, aren't tracking their emissions. There's no specific requirement on them to do so, so they're not. And so what a lot of public companies are saying is we just, we're not there yet. And to try and make estimates or guess at these numbers would just be more misleading than if we essentially say nothing and explain why we can't say anything. So this kind of, you know, either report or notify the public why you can't report on something. So I think that the scope one, two, and three emissions thing is something that's a really good example of why, you know, some of these proposals, and they're just proposals at this point, I think that's the other important point here, may change significantly before the rules themselves are actually finalized. I think just to kind of give a flavor of like what, issues are at play here. And, you know, we're not only examining this, of course, from a legal perspective, but there's, you know, also a role for technology, for example, that, you know, I know in the calculation of scope three emissions, for example, there's like lots of companies now that are entering in this space to, you know, help to calculate what are your emissions across these three different categories. It feels like there's uh, quite a lot that's going into now into carbon accounting. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that there's a lot to, I mean, I I think I saw an article the other day, I don't know if it was in the Wall Street Journal, just stating that there's now a shortage in consultants. I mean, so many people in the industry are, are looking for advice now on ESG issues, particularly because I think public companies in particular are concerned about, well, how are we going to prepare for these new rules that are going to be coming out? And what can we be doing now to get ready? And so there's this boom in the consulting industry and in the accounting industry. I think a lot of accounting firms are kind of getting into this space because trying to figure out what the emissions numbers are, how it impacts a company's bottom line from a financial perspective, et cetera, all those issues are kind of interlinked. And so you're just seeing this massive growth on the consulting side. And we've been working with an increasing number of consultants on the investment management side as well, where companies are trying to, again, kind of go through the same practice specifically because they're concerned about greenwashing, because they don't want to put something into, you know, a corporate sustainability report or some other public facing report that could be used against them down the road by the SEC or investors, which is a very real risk. And this is also kind of getting at this tension that I think we see in a lot of fields when it comes to sort of threatened actions from the regulator, the risk that a a regulator is going to step in versus actions that companies are sort of doing on their own in terms of anticipating that or as just best practices when it comes to already wanting to have this sort of 
disclosures and best business practices around things like ESG. So that's, yeah. um, that's a really good point. This is maybe getting towards another aspect. I mean, in addition to regulation, there's also kind of the threat or risk of litigation and enforcement actions. So have you guys been sort of, I'm sure that you guys have been following that. Um, yeah. Are there kind of key developments there? You know, not only has there been a lot of movement on the proposed rule side, but there's been numerous developments on the enforcement and litigation side. And this ties in, interestingly, to a point you were just making about companies that are kind of voluntarily trying to take steps to bring them to, to really take ESG considerations into kind of to, to heart and to, to act on those and do things voluntarily. Sometimes wanting to do the right thing can land you in hot water, so to speak, with like the SEC or somebody else, because, you know, many of our investment management clients, for example, are, are members of the UN Principles for Responsible Investment or signatories of the UNPRI. And the SEC has also stated that when they're right with their examiners come into investment managers, they are actually going to be looking at the filings that people make as a condition of being a signatory with the UNPRI and representations that are made about, you know, environmental, social and governance issues within those filings and comparing that to their actual policies and procedures of what they're actually doing. So it's a situation where even when you think you're doing something voluntarily, like a corporate sustainability report or CSR that you're putting up on your website, you need to be thinking about it from a regulatory and enforcement perspective. And I think there's a really good example kind of where you can land in hot water, so to speak, uh, dealing with a recent, you know, April 2022 SEC enforcement action. It's actually litigation, I should say, which is slightly different. Many times what the SEC does is they'll bring an enforcement action and it'll be settled through a settlement order here. The negotiations clearly broke down. And so now we're in a full, the SEC in a full litigation mode. And the allegations relate to a Brazilian mining company that allegedly made false and misleading claims about the safety of its dams prior to the collapse of one of its dams in January of 2019 that caused pretty significant environmental damage, loss of life, et cetera. And the SEC is pointing to those types of voluntary reports, corporate sustainability reports and things that this and public filings that this company put up on it for an annual or quarterly basis. We're just kind of reporting on its operations where the SEC alleges that the company was saying it was doing more from a safety perspective than it actually was. And the other interesting thing about this case is that the SEC litigation is coming on the heels of private litigation where the private litigants made certain arguments and they were able to avoid summary judgment in kind of the early stages of the case. And now the SEC is looking to those arguments and adopting some of them in connection with pursuing its own investigation and case against the company. So it really illustrates this sort of double threat of not only a private litigation, but also of SEC litigation enforcement action thereafter. And I think that that's something that a lot of companies are starting to pay a lot of attention to, just not even just from a, a cost perspective of defending it, but just from a reputational perspective of what it could mean. And one other question that we get a lot of times is, well, wait, this company that's the subject of the litigation, it's not even a U.S. company. It's offshore. It's operating well outside the U.S. jurisdiction. So what's even the hook? And I think that it's important for companies to realize that, you know, there are things called, I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with these, but American Depository Receipts or ADRs refers to negotiable certificates 
that will be issued by a U.S. depository bank, and they represent a specific number of a non-U.S. company's shares, usually like a one-to-one -one right. ratio. And the fact that those shares are in the U.S. and being traded, and there's a couple different factors, but the bottom line is the fact that those shares are in the U.S. being traded by U.S. investors gives the SEC an avenue to go after a non-U.S. company for its disclosures because U.S. investors could be harmed through by owning these ADRs if there's a significant loss in the value of a company. So it's something that I think a lot of large financial institutions and public companies outside the United States are paying even more attention to now on the ESG fronts for potential liability reasons. Thanks. Thanks, Dave. That's super helpful background. But I kind of just wonder, like, does this case represent almost like a high watermark in a way? Like it's almost like a clearer instance, you know, when there's certain statements that this company is making around its safety practices and then a dam breaks and people die and that there's real kind of harm inflicted, then it's kind of a clear case. I mean, it's catastrophic, right? But then you were mentioning before, too, that it's like, well, the SEC is really focusing on statements where companies are making where they're not really following these practices. Right. And so I just wonder if it's like, well, this case that you're mentioning, it's really just like the SEC just getting started in a way. That's right, because the I mean, SEC and even private litigants to an extent are going to start with the splashier cases, right? The cases that where there's a more clear indication of wrongdoing. But the SEC did recently bring its first enforcement action against a U.S. company. This was in a settled context relating to just general misstatements about the extent to which the company was describing its ESG practice and whether or not it was actually pre-screening investments in the way that it said it was. And that's kind of a much more maybe nuanced type of an issue on the screening side and what a company's doing internally to screen investments and how specifically that's depicted in its external communications. And so in that case, again, is a pure SEC enforcement action. I'm not aware yet of, of private litigation on that side, but it's possible that there could end up being some. But at the end of the day, I think companies really need to be thinking, taking a whole of the company approach to ESG issues and really making sure that they've got the policies and procedures in place. They have these supervisory procedures and supervisory personnel in place to really be keeping tight reins on what they're saying publicly about their ESG practices so that it doesn't come back to bite them or you know, as we've seen with a lot of whistleblowers, uh, some, we've got some NGOs now that will file complaints with the SEC, specifically in an attempt to get a company in trouble and in an attempt to publicly pressure that company to do something different and or have the SEC kind of play an assisting role in taking action against a company for alleged misrepresentation. So the climate's getting increasingly hot, I think, for a lot of public companies, investment managers, really anyone who's trying to do anything in the ESG space. But then just to go back to that case, so that case that you're mentioning is where a financial services company setting up funds and investments that were you know, ESG linked, but then the SEC is now had a enforcement action that has since been settled where they were saying that there were material misstatements and omissions. Financial services company was sort of advertising these ESG investments. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, to give an example kind of disassociated from that matter, I mean, we have clients sometimes who are in the process, many clients who are in the process of developing their ESG programs internally. 
And so fund one may not have made ESG related investments or not use the same criteria, whereas fund two is now going to be heavily focused on ESG, apply pre-screening of, um, of investments with you know, various sort of high ESG standards. And so companies can get in trouble, for example, where they don't delineate between fund one and fund two, and they just kind of make a broad statement about what they are doing now, but what they maybe didn't do for a legacy fund in the sense that, well, now if they go out and say, well, you know, we pre-screen all of our investments uh, prior to making the investment, but they didn't do it for fund one, they do do it for fund two, the SEC can make an argument. You know, this is greenwashing. You're not being clear with people that, yes, for the current fund that people are coming into, that, that it is the case that you are doing the pre-screening. But for that prior fund, you weren't, and you're really suggesting that you did. And so that's the type of issue that, you know, it's just it's all about the wording, word choice, and being just incredibly precise about what a company does and doesn't do. You know, as you were describing this, I couldn't help but think about, like, almost an analogy to the financial crisis and the Great Recession, where, you know, as a result of the crisis and a lot of these kind of very opaque instruments suddenly causing a ton of losses for investors, there was a fair amount of litigation around this, right? Where basically the concern was that a lot of these instruments were not clear in the amount of risk that they entailed being, you know, linked to very risky assets and having kind of these very complicated ways of then resulting in huge losses when those risky assets kind of went bust. And I almost wonder if the kind of enforcement or thinking here is sort of analogous in a way where, you know, it's just really so opaque how these decisions around what's ESG or not are being arrived at. Yeah, I think there are some parallels. And again, you know, this is why there's been such a push by the SEC recently across the board, whether it's public companies that as far as the information they're reporting, investment management taking the information in many instances published by those public companies and then, you know, communicating things about the investments that the manager is making to its investors. And so there needs to be some kind of standardization there as well. And then on the ratings agency side, and this goes harkens back to you know, at the, the start of our discussion, you know, would someone really expect that when they're investing in like an ESG index run by a major ratings agency, would they really expect, um, uh, you know, there needs to be standardization and kind of an understand that's what the SEC is really pushing for. I, I don't know if it's going to be as kind of intense as the taxonomy and what we see over in the EU, but the SEC is certainly pushing for something that at least brings some sort of order to the space, so to speak, and particularly on the environmental side. Given the focus on ESG in the US and around the world, what like risk mitigation steps would you guys recommend to clients so they can protect themselves from litigation or potential enforcement actions or, you know, otherwise when it comes to ESG matters? Companies, they can take steps now to prepare for these impending rules and new litigation risks by, you know, among other things, focusing closely on their public disclosures related to ESG issues examining their written supervisory policies and procedures on ESG topics. So Dave mentioned that earlier in the podcast, um, conducting ESG risk assessments to identify opportunities uh, for risk management and mitigation. So, you know, making sure right now that they're looking into the standards that we noted like SASB and TCFD and what their current practices are before, you know, 
they are under investigation. So we've been able to help clients as well begin that process. I love that actually really, you know, assessing these things before you're subject to litigation <laughs> before, you know, there's trouble. That's a great point. Yeah. And that's what we push clients on. a. I feel like it's a daily basis to really be thinking about the risk mitigation measures that they could be taking, because things that companies do now can save them just so much money in the long term. And that's why it's just critical that the companies be thinking about things now that they be following the proposal process and, and everything else. This information is also out there. The SEC has called for it in the last summer. They called for comments. So hundreds of letters were sent in from different entities on their view on what ESG should look like and what these disclosures should look like. And so there is ample opportunity to follow what's coming down the line. So awareness is huge. Um, and a lot of the rulemaking that applies to public companies and investment managers applies to US and non-US entities. So as noted, while clear standards are yet to be implemented, we know they're coming because of the momentum, you know, from the you know, Biden administration being focused on climate change to all these developments with the SEC over the past year, you know, it's on its way. So clients can use those standards like SASB and TCFD to identify risks and mitigation strategies. And it's really important for them to become familiar with it because like we said, in a way, it's sort of reading the tea leaves, so to speak, to predict next steps regulators are going to take when they decide on the ultimate final ESG disclosure rules, which you know are coming. We're not exactly sure when, but that's the major conversation at play right now. And then something you know that we mentioned as well earlier is that it's important to set achievable goals. So, and that's also within many of these proposals is that companies who are doing their risk assessment are creating their mitigation measures and ultimately making these disclosures they need to ensure that the targets and commitments with respect to esg issues are reasonable and achievable so they don't end up in a situation where they're saying oh yeah we do all of these you know amazing you know esg related uh, measures within our process but then ultimately it's found out that the disclosures don't match up with reality and that's where you see you know a lot of people getting in trouble Right. And, you know, I think one thing that I'm really taking away too from what you're saying, Karina, is like even in the absence, like there's, yes, there's proposed rulemaking. And so that there is, you know, kind of rules that are going and regulations that are be coming down the line. But even in the absence of that, we're already seeing kind of real world impact. We're already seeing real risks around this, whether it comes to, you know, like we were mentioning before, litigation or enforcement or, you know, sort of shareholder actions. I mean, we've certainly seen that or, you know, kind of other risks that company are already facing, even in advance of clear rules around this. Actually, that clear rules ultimately would be more helpful too for a lot of companies at the end of the day, right? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, that's why right now the conversation is so focused on what are those rules going to be? And so many comment letters are said in that we actually you know, wrote an article trying to synthesize what the main points of that were because everyone is trying to figure out what are the standards and there's so many sides to that analysis. But like you said, right now there are still investigations taking place simply due to claims made to investors that may not align with the investment bank or entities ESG investment practices. So that's why it's so important that, you know, one, that clients stay aware of 
what's happening with the SEC, what's the TCFD saying, what's SASB saying. And then in addition to that, when they decide to issue their own statements, they need to make sure that it actually aligns with what they're doing, because based on that alone, travel could be coming down the line. I'm really glad that we have folks like yourselves at the firm to help clients sort of navigate the wild, wild west of ESG <laughs> at the moment. It really is. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks, everyone, for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast on your app of choice or by visiting our podcast websites. You can email any questions or feedback, as always, to richard.kim at cliffordchance.com. Please follow Clifford Chance on LinkedIn. And you can also check out alerters that we produce on greenwashing and litigation risks. Thanks a lot, everyone. The content of this podcast does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. Specific legal advice about your specific circumstances should always be sought separately before taking any action.